Section 26 of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 17. Norman Administration, Part 1. The great constitutional work of the Anglo-Norman period was, as we have seen, the organization of administrative routine. The Norman king was virtually a despotic sovereign. William gained England at a time when the theoretical powers of the Anglo-Saxon king were at their highest, and to these he added the prerogatives of the feudal sovereign, without the practical limits which abroad were found in the independence of the feudal vassals. The nobles enjoyed none of the semi-royal rights or jurisdiction or taxation in their domains, and when William I exacted the oath of homage from every subject at the Council of Serum, he destroyed even the authority which the feudal vassals abroad enjoyed over their sub-vassals. The Wittangamote, which under the Anglo-Saxons had served as a constitutional check on the powers of the king, was turned into a feudal court, the creature and servant of the sovereign. The king became the lord and source of all justice, and there was no authority in theory or in practice which could gainsay his will. One limit alone remained. The crown still in theory remained elective, and the right of deposition was preserved. Hence the kings, as in the case of Rufus, Henry I, and Stephen, were forced to secure their title by concessions, which unfortunately there was no constitutional means of enforcing. The king, thus powerful in theory and in practice, the chief interest in Norman times necessarily centers around his person, and all that England then gained must be attributed to the royal authority and to the officials who surrounded him. The most important of these originally were the high steward, the chamberlain, the constable, officers exclusively of the royal household, which, though not without analogies in Anglo-Saxon times, had been copied by the Norman dukes from the old officials of the Carolings. Of these officers, the high steward or seneschal acted as supreme official in the royal court. The chamberlain was the financial officer of the royal household. The constable was the quartermaster-general of the royal army. He mustered the forces and ordered their disposition on service. He paid the mercenaries and had the jurisdiction over offenses against the laws of war and other disputes in the army. The constable subsequently shared his powers with the marshal, an officer of later creation, who besides the share he had in the duties of the constable, took a special cognizance of disputes in the court itself. The steward, the constable, and the marshal each had their separate courts independent of the common law, and in later times these were the object of much complaint, as interfering with the right of a subject to be tried by his peers. By the side of these officers of the household, there rapidly rose a ministerial class who soon supplanted them. The household offices became hereditary in certain families, definitely in the reign of Henry II, and fell back into an honorable position, but one of secondary constitutional importance. The ministerial officers are chiefly these, the justiciary, the treasurer, the chancellor. Of these, the justiciary was in the Norman times by far the most important. 
The origin of the office is obscure. It was unknown abroad before the Norman conquest, and was therefore of purely Anglo-Norman creation. The first justiciary was William Fitzosborne, the steward or seneschal of William, and this has been taken as an indication that the origin is to be sought in the seneschalship, the duties of which were transferred to this new office. However this may be, Ronald Flambar, the oppressive minister of William Rufus, must be considered the first consolidator of the office, and Roger of Salisbury, the famous minister of Henry I, the final organizer of its duties. His powers growing side by side with the advancing centralization of government, when they reached their climax in the reign of Henry I, were these. He was ex officio regent of the kingdom in the king's absence. He was the president of the Curia Regis, and of its financial committee or session, the exchequer, and he united in his own person all the rights and duties of supreme financial, judicial, and executive officer. He was surrounded by a number of officers who, when sitting in the Curia Regis, were called justices, but in the exchequer, barons of the exchequer. Representing the king, the justiciary went his circuits by which he kept the local courts in due subordination watching over the financial privileges of the king, and held periodical jail deliveries. Already in the time of Henry I, as we have seen, his own officers of justices were beginning to take his place, owing to press of business and increasing centralization. To become, under Henry II, the itinerant justices with regular and fixed circuits. The justiciary from the time of Ranulf Flambar was universally an ecclesiastic, probably to prevent the great powers of the office from becoming the prerogative of any one family, or in any sense hereditary, and because churchmen alone could be trusted to administer these distinctly anti-feudal duties faithfully. Next to the justiciary came the treasurer. To him was entrusted the keeping of the royal treasure of Winchester. He was an important officer in the exchequer and received the accounts of the sheriff in that court. The Chancellor. This officer, who in after times became the most important of all, and the second subject of the realm next to the archbishop, stood only third in Norman times. The office appears in England as early as the reign of Edward the Confessor and was probably derived from the Archicancellarius of the Carolings. The derivation of the name Conkelly, or screen, behind which the secretarial work of the household was carried on, tells us of his duties. He was the Secretary of State and Chief of the Clerks of the King's Court. Always an ecclesiastic, he held the position of Chief Chaplain to the King. He kept the King's conscience, as the phrase went, and administered the revenues of vacant benefices until they were filled up. All these officials were members of the Curia Regis. This term seems to be applied indiscriminately to the Committee of the Commun Concilium and to the Supreme Judicial Court of the Realm, and it is by no means improbable that they were originally one and the same. The Committee of the National Council administering justice in virtue of the King's assumed presence there, or the king's judicial court usurping the legislative functions of the national council. It is, however, with the Curia Regis as a judicial court that we are now concerned. Again, 
Many opinions have been held as to the origin of this court. Some claim for it a purely Saxon origin, and look upon it as representing the committee of the old Wittengemote. By others it is declared to be of purely Norman growth. The truth seems to lie between. No doubt the dukes of Normandy had their curia ducus or feudal court in common with other feudatories. This they brought with them to England, and uniting it with the committee of the Wittengemote turned it into the curia regis. For the rest, its powers were of gradual growth, and as they appear under Henry I, were different at once from its Anglo-Saxon and Norman prototypes, a court of Anglo-Norman creation and organization with a double origin. The Curia Regis, then, as a judicial court, was the court of the king sitting to administer justice with his councillors. These were theoretically all the members of the National Council, practically the great officers of state, and a few expressly summoned justices, and in the absence of the king it was presided over by the justiciary. Its original jurisdiction extended to disputes between the tenants-in-chief and in other cases where leave had been obtained, but its more important duties belonged to it as a court of appeal from the inferior courts. In this way the local courts were united to the central courts, and this connection was much increased when the justices of the Supreme Court became itinerant justices or were made sheriffs as was the policy of Henry I. When sitting for financial purposes, it was called the exchequer, and since in Norman times the financial necessities of the king were the primary motives in developing the judicial system, this its financial side was the most important. At two full sessions held at Easter and Michaelmas, the sheriffs appeared and paid the farm of the shire, each county share of the Danegeld, the proceeds of the pleas of the crown, and the feudal dues. These, with the sale of offices and exactions under the forest laws, forming the chief incidents of Norman taxation. The farm of the shire was the sum for which the shire was let to the sheriff, who reimbursed himself from the royal dues, the fines in the court, the profits from the royal domains, or from other sources. The Danegeld was a tax levied since Anglo-Saxon times for the defense of the realm, but much increased by William I and Henry I. The pleas of the crown were special offenses, the fines of which went directly to the crown, especially the murdrum, or sum of money payable by each hundred, in cases where a murder had been committed within their limits. By William I, this was exacted in cases where the murdered man could not be proved to be an Englishman, and the verdict which settled this was called the presentment of Englishry. Of these accounts, the treasurer and the chancellor each kept an account termed the pipe roll of the treasurer and the roll of the chancellor. Cases of dispute were settled by the barons of the exchequer, who went their circuits for this purpose, and these were probably the origin of the later judicial circuits of the justices in air. Under the central court, with its two sides, judicial and financial, worked the local courts of the shire, the hundred, and the manor. These were continued from Anglo-Saxon times, and the procedure remained the same, with the addition of the trial by combat in cases where Normans were concerned, and the inquests by sworn jurors for the purpose of gaining information 
such as that required for the compilation of the Doomsday Survey, for the assessment of taxation, and for the settlement of disputes involving land. In the Shire Court, presided over by the Sheriff, the King's nominee, greater causes, civil and criminal, were tried. The Hundred Court, presided over by the Bailiff, settled small disputes of debt, and when presided over by the Sheriff, was termed the Sheriff's Leet in Criminal Matters, the Sheriff's Turn for holding views of frank pledge in connection with the system of police. The bond between these courts and the Central Court was very slight at first, and it was the work of the Norman period to draw it tighter. William I had for this purpose resorted to the custom of holding three annual sessions of the Curia Regis in the three great towns of the South, Westminster, Winchester, and Gloucester. Henry I sent his barons of the Exchequer to sit in the county court for the assessment of revenue. The justices in his reign also began to go their circuits, and were often themselves made sheriffs, by which the subordination of these local courts was effectually secured. Besides these popular courts, there existed also the manorial courts, the forest courts, and the courts of the enfranchised boroughs. End of section 26